Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Perhaps a very familiar passage to you. But please give close attention to the reading of the Word of God. It is infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. Hear now the Word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is life. Your Word is truth. Your Word is power. And we pray, Lord, that Your Word would have great power in our lives to convict us of sin, to encourage us on to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you've heard of the term... Role model, haven't you? I think that actually more and more it's come in the news and come to our forefront because some of you may recall, I think it was about eight or ten years ago when there was a bit of a stir in the news because a professional basketball player came out and publicly said, I am not a role model. Tell your kids not to follow what I'm doing. And then a debate ensued as to whether professional athletes were role models and all of the ills that go along with what seems modern professional athletes and and their difficulties with the law, with controlling their lifestyles, etc. But we are aware that we all have role models. And we are role models to others. I think that's especially true for parents, isn't it? I'm amazed at how often my phrases come out of my children's mouth. Because they've heard me say certain things. And it's not that it's necessarily good or bad. It's just certain idiosyncratic things that we say. But it's not just parents. Is it, kids? Because, of course, we have the concept of a big brother or a big sister. And sometimes that's even more pronounced. We can say to our children, you know, you have your own mind. You don't need to always do what your brother does. You don't need to always say what your sister does. Role models. It's because we have influence in other people's lives and other people influence us By what we do. Or by what they do, I should say. And because that's true, 
we can be very conscious about how we act. But sometimes we have to be careful about being too conscious about how we act. That's what's happening here today in our passage. You see, Peter is a role model. And there's a lot about Peter's life that's a good role model. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 if you want to see that. You'll see Peter preaching a bold sermon. Keep going through Acts where Peter gives us a model to follow where he says we must obey God rather than men. But sometimes Peter's not so good of a role model. And we see that here. And Paul takes opportunity to teach the Galatians the danger about being concerned with our own reputation, the danger about guarding our own actions in a certain fashion that we actually impair the Gospel. And so, what I'd like us to do this morning is to look at this text. But what I want you to do is this, and this is going to be a little bit difficult for many of us. As we look at this text, I don't want you to just think By putting yourself in the shoes of Paul. That's often what we do, isn't it? Would I be brave enough to speak like Paul spoke? I wonder when I'll have an opportunity to confront error like Paul does. I I don't want you to forget Paul, but I want you to also put yourself in the shoes of Peter. And how Peter is affected by his concern for his reputation. And how Peter responds to Paul. So what I'd like us to see this morning are four things. I'd like us to see self-confusion that comes from concern for reputation. Peter confuses himself. He becomes confused. But it doesn't end with Peter because the second thing I'd like us to see is that Peter's concern for his reputation draws others astray. He becomes confused But others become confused as well, and they're drawn astray. And then Paul enters the picture and brings clarity instead of confusion. Paul sees what's going on, and he wants things to be clear, not just to the Galatians, not just to those at Antioch, but to Peter, too. He wants Peter to be clear. Self-confusion, drawing others astray, then clarity instead of confusion, and then finally... Bringing others back. You see, Paul doesn't stop at clearing up misconceptions. He wants the church brought back into the fold. So, let's look first at Peter's self-confusion. We're going to look at our text initially beginning at verse 12. We'll come back to verse 11 in a bit. In verse 12... Paul is telling us this story about what's happening. You may know that it's, a thir- it's the third in a series of stories he's been telling in the context of trying to explain that the Galatians should not be confused, especially about central gospel matters. He's explained what happened when he went up to Jerusalem. He's explained that what happened when he met with the pillars. And now he's talking about an incident at Antioch. And he says in verse 12, For before certain men came from James... He, that is, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, the first thing that Paul wants us to see is what Peter believes. Because 
What he believes and what he does are actually two different things here. You see, Peter's beliefs are shown by his initial conduct. Paul sets the scene. He says, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter is in Antioch. And this is after the division of labor we talked about last week. So Peter is in Antioch, in the church with the Gentiles. So Peter shows that what he believes is he is a man who is concerned for the Gentiles. He's not just about the Jews. He's concerned that the Gentiles are taught and instructed and encouraged. So much so that he travels up from Jerusalem to be with them and to fellowship with them. This is important. Peter's showing his concern and his concern for unity in the church. And then what happens is certain men come from James. Now, don't be confused here. This is the third in a series of incidents. These certain men are not the Judaizers in Galatia. This is in Antioch some years earlier. These men are not those who are seeking to add works of the law. They come as messengers from James. And you recall, we looked last week, what's James' gospel? It's the same as Paul's, right? So these men come from James, and what they come, reading between the lines, what we see is that this is a period of time of great persecution in the church, especially from the Jews, because the Jews are gearing up for great hostility with the Romans. They're about to rebel and actually form an army to fight the greatest empire on earth. And so... Anyone who could be seen as siding with the Romans, with the Gentiles, is worthy of a punch in the nose. They don't like Christians that like Gentiles. Because they're Jews. And they hate Gentiles. And they're fighting the Gentiles. And so what's going on in Jerusalem and in Palestine is is there's this sort of very delicate balancing act as the church takes its mission out, but wants to make sure that it's not impaired by these rigorous, hateful Jews. And you can imagine the message that James's followers would bring. You know, let's try and be a little bit on the quiet about our association with the Gentiles. Let's not be flashy about it. Let's try and keep that to the side. Don't stop it, but let's not play up the differences between Christians and Jews, so that our mission can go forward. And so they come here to Antioch to speak with Peter. That's the scene that's set. But we know that what Peter did, what his habit was, was to eat with the Gentiles, was to be like the Gentiles. The language here is very vivid. We might even say, for before certain men came from James, it was Peter's habitual course of life, to eat with the Gentiles. He didn't just do it once. It was something he probably did every day. And that's perfectly consistent with what we know of Peter's conduct from Acts. In Acts 10, he goes to Cornelius and is there and sees the the vision of that everything is clean. So much so that in Acts 11, verse 3, he is accused by the circumcision party of, quote, eating with Gentiles. It was something that Peter did very often. But 
I also want you to get a little bit of a picture of what's going on here with the eating. That eating is about more than food. Here's what I don't want you to have a picture of. Peter is not having a first century version of heart and home with some of the families in Antioch. He's not. As good as heart and home is, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to ours this week. I'm sure you're enjoying that as well. It's a good time of fellowship and food, but that's not what's going on here. There's more than just being with each other and sharing a meal. You see, eating is, involves a concept called table fellowship. You may remember the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul is telling the Corinthians that they should not encourage the sexually immoral and the thieves and the wicked in their midst. He says you shouldn't even eat with them. You shouldn't bring them into close fellowship. This is a sign that the Gentiles are part of the church, that Peter is having table fellowship with them. And this shouldn't surprise us because our Lord did the same thing and was accused in the same way, wasn't He? What was one of the most venomous things that the Pharisees spat out at Him? That He ate with sinners. Because you see, if the Gentiles are down here, sinners are maybe about here. Not like good Jews and Pharisees and members of the Sanhedrin. I'd have to get on a ladder to go up. You see, that was what our Lord was criticized for. So, we know what Peter's thought process is and what his beliefs are by his prior action. But we see something else happening in verse 12. When this party comes, when these messengers come, he draws back and separates himself, fearing the circumcision party. And I want you to see something loud and clear. Peter knows what's right in his mind, but he acts in a way that he is driven by fear. He doesn't act based on what he believes. He doesn't act based on God's Word that was given to him in Acts 10. He acts on his fear. Fear is driving his ministry. You see that very clearly in the text. It says he does this because he feared the circumcision party. And I want you to notice how he acts this way. This is putting yourself in Peter's shoes. I don't want you to get the impression that what happens is Peter's sitting at a table, eating, the messengers from James come in, and he drops his fork and gets up and walks away. That's not what happens. You see, the language here of drawing away, drawing back, and separating himself really gives us the connotation of something that's happening gradually. We might imagine... Peter sees them and he kind of slumps down a little bit. He might hurry with his meal. The next week he might make up an excuse not to have dinner with someone. The week after that, he might consciously walk by the table that he used to eat at, to eat with the men from James. You see, this is a a gradual process. Fear is something that doesn't always grip us as terror and immediately causes a reaction. It causes us to hesitate first when doing what's right. And then to sort of make excuses for not doing what's right. And then even to say, well, I guess I'm right all along not to do that. That's what's happening to Peter. And 
Fear does something else to him. It causes him to stop thinking. You see, Peter knows what's right. He knows his Bible. He helped to write it. (laughs) He preaches incredible sermons in the beginning of Acts, and what happens is it stops him from thinking. It's as if a light switch is turned off by fear. And what he winds up doing is taking something that is meant for good and turning it for evil. It says that he separates himself from the Gentiles. We've seen this word before. Look up in your Bibles to chapter 1 at verse 15. You remember when Paul said, But when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born... You see, God sets people apart. The Holy Spirit sets people apart. It set apart Paul and Barnabas. But Peter reverses it. Instead of being separated by the grace of God and being separated toward the church, he's using it to divide the church. He's paralyzed by fear. And you can see this in his motivation. He is afraid of his reputation in front of the circumcision party. The question then comes to us. Are we driven by fear in our lives and our ministry? Does fear prevent us from doing something that we know is right? But we just can't get a grip on it because we're afraid. Well, the answer to you and the encouragement to you is that we shouldn't be surprised. And that's not the end of the world because it happened to Peter. And look how he turned out. May we all have others, as we'll see in a moment, to come along and encourage us. So Peter is confused by all of this. He's become self-confused, but it doesn't stop there. Look what happens in verse 13. Others are drawn astray, our second point. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, the rest of these Jews, but really we're talking about Jewish Christians here, The rest of these Christians of Jewish extraction see what Peter's doing and they follow along. You see, Peter's actions have a consequence. You see, Peter didn't believe what he was doing because that's why Paul says he acted hypocritically. Hypocritically, kids, is when you know something is right and you do the other. Or you say something that you don't believe. It's a hypocrite. And that's what Peter's doing. He's following what he doesn't believe. And so what happens is those around him are drawn astray. And the language here is very interesting. Being drawn astray carries with it the connotation of being irrational. Being irrationally emotional. There's nothing wrong with having emotions and being emotional. But there's an irrationality involved with this. They know what's right and they act another way because they're afraid. Peter's afraid of the circumcision party. The Jews are afraid of what Peter will think of them if they don't follow him. And they're drawn astray. And we see that it's a direct result of what Peter does in his life. The text tells us that they acted hypocritically so that... A direct result 
of Peter's actions is that others are drawn astray. Peter should have known better. He's acting out of expediency, not principle. He's acting out of pragmatism, not principle. And a direct result of his actions is that others are drawn astray. We see this in our own lives, don't we? Parents, we see that with our children, don't we? If we act in a fashion that is purely pragmatic and contrary to our principles, what happens to our children? They become confused. They don't know what to do. They're not sure how to act. That's what's happening here in Antioch. Peter isn't following through on what he believes, and others are confused along with him. And what he winds up doing, not just teaching by his actions, but he winds up undoing what he has helped to build. You need to know just a little bit about the place Antioch at this time. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was home to a half a million people, which is a very large city in antiquity. Think about a place that big without a modern sewage and plumbing system. Or without modern deliveries of food. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and there was Antioch. And Antioch was also a place that for really centuries had been known for wonderful relations between Jews and Gentiles. The Antioch church was a model of what Paul talked about in the book of Ephesians about God breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentiles. So much so that Antioch is a place that causes difficulties in the book of Acts. When they have the great Jerusalem council, it's because of what's going on in Antioch. Because others are coming from the outside and saying, why are these Jews and Gentiles getting along so well? It was a model of church diversity. If you wanted to have a good, diverse, positive Jewish-Gentile church, you would go and look at Antioch. That's the kind of place it was. And Peter, through his actions, upsets this, tumbles it. It's as if, children, we've talked about this before, where you're building some huge building with, with blocks or Legos or something, and one of your siblings comes along, and you turn quick and you knock it over. And you're upset because you've just destroyed what you've been building. That's what Peter's doing. He's knocking it down. You see, Peter's job is to clarify things for this church. And instead, he's confusing them. He's doing something that's causing them to swerve from the path in which they were in. This shouldn't surprise us, right? We follow crowds all the time, don't we? So much so that is there a parent here who has not said this phrase? Well, if Johnny and all the gang jumped off a cliff, would you? And depending on the age of the child, some children might go, yeah, I guess so. If they're all doing it, you know, it can't be that bad. That's we're prone to do that. We don't like to be outsiders. We don't like to be cutting against the grain. We don't like to be embarrassed. And that's what's happening at Antioch. One man's actions are causing this difficulty. And it's so profound that you can almost hear Paul's voice cracking as he says, Even Barnabas 
was drawn astray. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, one of the main missionaries to the Gentiles, my partner in the gospel, he's drawn astray. The pain in Paul's voice is audible. And many commentators suggest, and I tend to agree with them, that were it not for this incident... Paul and Barnabas may not have broken over the disagreement with John Mark in Acts. It's really at this point that their close association begins to fray. In the back of Paul's mind is, can I really trust Barnabas? He was drawn astray. Paul is clearly pained by this. So Peter is confused. The people are now confused and drawn astray by Peter's actions. There's chaos in the Antioch church. What was once a model has now become chaos because, in a nutshell, Peter was concerned about how he looked. And he was driven by fear. Ministry is in shambles because of this. And Paul steps into the gap in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, Paul steps in and he immediately evaluates what's going on. He sees how Peter's acting. He knows what Peter thinks. He knows they're not in harmony. And he sees the damage that's coming from that. He sees the results of Peter's actions. And the first result of that is that Peter and those at Antioch are not in step. It's a very vivid metaphor here. They're not on the right road. They've taken a wrong turn. Have you ever done that? You're on vacation. You're going somewhere. You think you need to turn right. Maybe MapQuest has said turn right and it's really turn left. You're completely astray. And it's not just that you're going in the wrong direction, right? Those good directions you have, what are they worth now? Nothing. You're in no man's land. You don't know what to do. You're confused. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how to get back. And if you're like me, you're getting frustrated because you don't know how you're possibly going to get out of this situation. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I see they're not on the right road. You need to be walking the right way. The word here for being on the right path is very vivid. How many of you, this is not so much today, so maybe my generation are a little bit older, how many of you remember hearing about orthopedic shoes? Right? In my day, orthopedic shoes were big, clumsy, ugly black things that no kid wanted to wear. Right? But if you had to wear them... What did your mother do, usually? Sometimes your father, but usually your mother, because moms are keeping close track of these things. Anytime you didn't have mom, they'd say, put your shoes on. Why? Because the orthopedic shoes fixed your feet. They put you straight. What Paul's saying is, they need to get on the right path. Peter's taking them off the right path. They need to get back on the right path. I want you to notice something else that Paul does here. He sees what's going on, but he doesn't act rashly. This is now for when we are putting ourselves in Paul's shoes, orthopedic or not. 
You see, we tend to, when we see something going wrong, to jump or pounce immediately on the issue. Paul doesn't do that. Because again, remember, Peter's defection, as it were, was gradual. It was slow. We can almost imagine Paul watching and saying, Oh, Peter, really, come on. You don't need to walk by that table. Oh, he did it again. How concerned is he about this? Paul's not acting rashly, but he is... He is acting forcefully. Because you see, Paul knows that Peter has not changed his beliefs. He's just changed his actions. And it's causing everyone a problem. Because, do you notice this odd question that Paul asks Peter? He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. Live. Little words in the Bible are important. It doesn't say lived, does it? It says live. It's a present tense. It's as if Paul's saying, Peter, I know what you really believe. Why aren't you acting in accordance with it? I can see what you're doing. Because I can see the significance of your actions. They are causing you to move astray from the truth of the gospel. Not something on the periphery. You're causing a central problem by your actions. And so the question then comes to us. Do we think about our lives, our actions, in terms of implication for the gospel? We need to. Children, the next time you are thinking about making fun of someone in your neighborhood or a brother or a sister, you need to think about what that says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Adults, men, the next time you are traveling and in a hotel room in a city 700 or 1,000 miles away and you click on the hotel television or internet when no one else will see you, you need to think about what that says about the Lord Jesus Christ and the implications of the Gospel in your life. Ladies, when you are gripped by fear for your children or your marriage, you need to think about what that says about the gospel implications of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Our actions betray what we think about the gospel. Even if we haven't changed our thinking. Others don't see... It's not like the cartoons where they cut to the show of the guy's head and there's the wheel going around or a mouse running around in, a, in one of those wheels... Pretending thinking. No. People can't see you think. They see you act. This is significant. It's so significant that Paul jumps into action when he decides to act. He comes up and opposes Peter, verse 11, to his face. He comes directly to Peter. It's, it's actually a legal term. When, when Paul 
is being accused in Roman courts by the Jews. They come up and accuse him to his face. Literally. We have much the same concept in our legal system, don't we? We have actually built into our Bill of Rights the right of an accused to what? Confront his accuser. Okay? And we believe in that right so strongly that it causes difficulties in cases where children are victims and they have to testify. But you see, it's, if it's important enough, we want face-to-face confrontation. And that's what Paul does. And he doesn't just have a suggestion for Peter. He's not mild about it. He opposes him. That word is the same word that Peter himself will use in chapter 5 of his first letter where he says, resist the devil. It's the same word. Oppose him. And it's not because Paul doesn't love Peter, it's because Paul loves the gospel more. And he loves Peter and doesn't want him on the wrong track. Paul springs into action because he sees the truth of the gospel is at stake. He sees that the Gentiles are being marginalized. What Peter's actions are saying is, well, unless you want to conform to the way the Jews eat and dress and do things, well, we really can't have fellowship together. You see, what Peter's actions are saying is, something other than Jesus Christ is the source of communion. Do we do that? Do we not want to be seen with someone because of the home they live in? Or because of certain beliefs they might have about raising children? Or because of the political party that they are affiliated with? Or because of their views toward unions? Or because of their views toward the Iraq war? Or whatever? You see, the source of communion for the Christian is Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. It doesn't start anywhere else. It begins with Jesus. Paul knows that. Peter's forgotten it. And so what Paul then does is, he doesn't just confront Peter for the sake of showing everyone that he knows the gospel better. That's a temptation. He confronts Peter to bring others back. He's defending the troubled and restoring the confused. First, he's defending the Galatians, the troubled. He has a pastoral concern, excuse me, for those at Antioch. He's concerned that they're being hurt by this. And they probably are. He's also concerned about their theology. Because they're getting all kinds of screwed up ideas. For all we know, the Gentiles in Antioch are making circumcision appointments. And buying Jewish cookbooks. Thinking, well, if I'm going to be in the church, I guess I've got to become a Jew. But you see, what Paul says is, I'm concerned about you. And because I'm concerned about you, he does something that's very difficult. Look what happens in verse 14. He sees their conduct is not in step with the truth, and he says to Peter before them all in an open public assembly. He says to Peter, you know, Peter walked on water, 
preached at Pentecost, first saw the conversion of Gentiles, pretty big man in the church, in public he says to him, you're wrong. Now I want you to imagine this. That we're sitting here, and I'm preaching, or you're sitting in a Sunday school, and all of a sudden, one of the elders steps up and he says, you're wrong. The Bible says this. Why are you preaching that? Why are you doing that? Sort of like you can hear a pin drop, right? Somebody just took a big stinky fish and threw it up here. Men start going like this with their ties. Ladies are looking at their shoes. Everybody's uncomfortable. But you see, Paul knows something important is at work here. And he knows it wouldn't be enough to just speak to Peter privately because there's been a very public effect of Peter's actions. And so he comes before them all because he's concerned about those at Antioch. But he's not just concerned about those at Antioch. He's also concerned about Peter. You see, he says in verse 11, he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. It's a very strong word. Usually used in the context of being condemned before God. Now, does that mean Paul is now doubting Peter's salvation? Peter doesn't know the tulip. Peter's got the daisy. You know, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. No. But what Paul is saying here is, you've got to go with what you know and what you believe. If you keep following this path, that's a path of condemnation. You know that, Peter. That's not the gospel. That's a path of death. You've got to go away from there. And so he's calling Peter away. Now, I want you to notice two things. He's not afraid of losing a friendship with Peter. He's not afraid if Peter walks away from that and doesn't talk to him for two weeks. Because he cares enough for Peter and his soul to confront him. He's also not afraid of his own reputation. Because in that context we were talking about, you know, with the stinky fish up front, nobody wants to look at the man who's said the emperor's clothes, he's naked. You know, why are you such a troublemaker? Paul... Come on. You know, it's not that big of a deal if Peter doesn't eat with us. Now, you can, now everybody's awkward. Come on. But you see, Paul's not afraid if that takes his reputation down a peg because the gospel's at stake. And so the question I put to you is, is that the way you look at the gospel? When you're sitting at a get-together of people in your neighborhood and someone says, you know... This business with Jesus is a bunch of hokey. I read in this book that he actually married Mary Magdalene and had kids. And I, you know, or worse yet, I read in this book that he was gay. And there's a doctor and a lawyer and your kid's school teacher. And the, are you concerned more about the Lord Jesus' reputation than your own? To stand up for Him with clarity and boldness? And finally here, I want you to see Peter's reaction to what's going on here. I'm going to confess something to you. Perhaps the most difficult job as an elder and a minister is to confront someone with their sin. Either sin of bad theology or sin of action. 
And one of the most difficult things, again, as an elder or a pastor or as a believer, is to be confronted with our sin. Now, you know it because if you've spoken to someone, you've heard this someone say this to you, or you've maybe even said it to someone else. When someone says, you know, Peter, you really ought not to be eating only with the Jews, we can almost hear how Peter could respond. Well, Paul, at least I didn't hold the cloaks of the people who stoned Stephen now, did I? Zip! Right back at him. You want to get me a sin? I'll see you. And I'll raise you. Come on. Or, we immediately begin to get defensive about our actions. Well, I'm just trying to make sure the Jews are being made welcome. These are visitors from out of town. I don't mean anything by it. Why are you accusing me of that? You know that in your heart. That's your first reaction. That's mine. That's the sin that needs to be purged out of our lives. But I want you to see how Peter reacts. Because this happens before Acts 15. And at the great council of Jerusalem, when the circumcision party has put all of their eggs in one basket and brought all of their best speakers and marshaled all of their best arguments, Peter stands with Paul for the Gospel. Boldly. He's not defensive about it. He doesn't say, well, you know, we really ought to accommodate them. It's really uncomfortable to be criticized. Peter takes the rebuke, and he takes it so well that I want you to turn with me briefly as we begin to close. And I want you to see Peter's ending to his second letter. Second epistle, one of the main themes that he's talking about is staying away from false teachers. Staying away from those who teach works righteousness. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not what? Carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. It's as if Peter is letting us in on the epilogue, saying... I once did something that caused people to get carried away. And Paul is a good man to listen to. Don't get carried away. And so that comes to us. Don't be carried away by fear. Don't be carried away by your reputation. Look instead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Focus on the main things of the Gospel. And you'll never be led astray by those who would seek to do so.